Okay. I need a fix cause I'm going down Back to the bits that I left uptown I need a fix cause I'm going down Mother Superior jumped the gun Mother Superior jumped the gun Yoko, no, no Yoko, no, yes I need a fix cause I'm going down Back to the bits that I left uptown I need a fix cause I'm going down This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu, and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. It was created as a place where addicts can be treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have many, many, many decades of experience in treating addiction, including co-occurring mental health disorders, even SMI. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, the uber spiritual sweat lodge, equine therapy, surfing. They make sure that whatever you are kicking, that you're detoxing as comfortably as possible, whether it's benzos, alcohol, heroin, or coke. If I was uh, fucked and I was willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help, I would totally go to aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose a sober way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. So here's the deal. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? Coney Island? CASL is the solution. Dating in recovery is real and worth considering if you have your shit together. CASL is the platform where you can meet junkies and crackheads, alcoholics just like you all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Oh, and by the way, it's totally fucking free. And exciting things are happening at CASL. They have an interactive chat where you can video chat with beautiful addicts in recovery from all over the world. Add your profile to CASL so they have more beautiful addicts. Again, it's free at the App Store, Apple Store, or the Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Grady's Cold Brew Coffee. And I have to say, I love Grady's Cold Brew Coffee. They sent me this gigantic box, which I figured would last me through Thanksgiving, but somehow I finished it this week because the coffee was so delicious, strong, and full of chicory goodness grady's coffee was founded in 2011 it is an independently owned and operated coffee brewing company it's based in the bronx over at hunts point and grady is a real person the coffee's amazing save yourself some money order grady's cold brew coffee use the dopey code that's dopey 25 save 25 percent if you are a cold brew fanatic you know how much it costs in stores 25 percent off grady's will save you money this coffee is great i hope they send me some more if not i'm gonna order it myself using dopey code dopey 25 
This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the amazing new Patreon account. It's www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast. Every week, we have a new Dopey Patreon episode. Last week was an episode you didn't want to miss. It is with my dad, Alan, who was hospitalized. He's okay, but maybe you should be worried that he's not okay and listen to the show. My dad tells a lot of his story. Join the Dopey Patreon. There's a $2 tier, a $5 tier, and a $10 tier. On October 24th of this month, we're doing another Dopey Patreon Zoom with me and Ray. We're playing games. We're telling spooky ghost stories. There will be prizes that I will send to winners. www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Please join the Patreon. Help me get out of the deli. Also, to help me get out of the deli, and so you look really cool in Dopey merch, go to the Dopey store, www.dopeypodcast.com. There is, like, maybe the coolest Dopey merch ever available right now. The limited Halloween Dopey sweatshirt hoodie. The first ever Dopey crew neck sweatshirt. The new fall autumn colored t-shirts. Check it all out at the Dopey store at dopeypodcast.com. Everything, of course, is made and shipped out by our partners from SRO Prince out of Cincinnati, Ohio. They are a bunch of recovering drug addicts, too. So let's hear it for the boys at SRO Prince. I also have new Oyve snapbacks if you want them. I still have Dopey snapbacks, and I have some Dopey beanies left. I also have stickers, Venmo me for any of that stuff. It's a lot of ads. It's good for the show. Don't worry. Here's the fucking show. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I am Dave, and it is a beautiful... October day on Long Island. I'm in the attic, very excited for the show. My program is dialed in, but I had this weird moment uh, that I want to share with you guys. So every morning I've been, I've been getting up super early again. I've been going to bed super early and getting up incredibly early. And every morning I'm like doing my little spiritual routine and I'm praying and I'm meditating and I'm doing crazy push-ups and sit-ups. And um, and when I sit down to meditate, I look down at my arms and uh, they're gigantic, just ripped. No, they're not gigantic or ripped, but I have one vein that's showing himself to me. And it's like almost like reminding me of my past life because I don't think about shooting dope very often. And I never, like Chris would always brag about his ropey veins and how he never even had to tie off to shoot. And I always struggled. And now all of a sudden this vein is, is showing itself to me and it's, it's a little bit off-putting. But um, I'm not tempted. I don't think about uh, using, thank God. Although seeing the vein was a little weird. Anyway, before we get any further in the show, we have to wish the great Ray Brown a happy birthday. And don't tell anybody, but today is Ray's 60th birthday. And if I know Ray, he's probably showering right now with his clothes on, munching on pubic hairs out of a box full of pubic hairs. Happy birthday to Ray. 
There's a lot of other news, too. The great Canadian dopey superfan, Carneef, gets 90 days today. So let's hear it for Carneef. If I had a vape, I'd be knocking it. I'll just knock on the desk. I'm sure Chris is uh, knocking some vapes in heaven, if that is a place, and Chris is there. Carneef provided some of my favorite dopey material in the history of the show. I believe it was 134 or 135, calling me and Chris homophobic. Uh, I remember that episode very well. It's something I listen to when I'm feeling down. It makes me happy. Also, if memory serves me, he sent in a theme song on an episode way before that that I didn't care for. Too techno-y, Carneef, eh? Carneef is a Canadian. I don't know if I mentioned that. So happy Canada, Carneef Day. 90 days for Carneef. Stick with it. You can make it if you try. The world is your oyster. All that good stuff, Carneef. couple more things I'd like to acknowledge. Um, this week would have been John Lennon's 80th birthday. John Lennon was probably my favorite songwriter, singer-songwriter type guy. I love John Lennon. I played a little demo of uh, Happiness is a Warm Gun at the front of the show. And this week on the BBC, they put out a John Lennon 80th birthday, which is hosted by Sean Lennon. And Sean interviews Julian Lennon, Paul McCartney, and Elton John. I would love to have all of them on Dopey. I'm sure they all have crazy Dopey stories. And maybe one day they will all come on Dopey. And, uh, you know, John Lennon, man, I don't know. He's my favorite. Also this week, in sad news, we lost crazy virtuoso guitar player, the great Eddie Van Halen. And I was never the biggest Van Halen fan, but uh, I was friends with a lot of really big Van Halen fans. And I smoked a bunch of weed to Van Halen, and I recognize his greatness, and I feel sad that he is no longer on earth. He is an amazing musician and a cultural hero. Like, the world is a different place without the great Edward Vaughn. It's like uh, Clockwork Orange when he's like uh, Ludwig Vaughn. I always think of Eddie Van in the same way. Um, tomorrow, dopes, Saturday, October 10th, is Mental Health Day. So if you have a second and you know somebody who suffers from any sort of mental illness, look out for them. Let's recognize the greatness in the uh, mentally ill that we all might be. Because I'm sure a lot of people in the Dopey Nation, myself included, have a little bit of SMI going on. So happy Mental Health Day to you guys. I'm very excited for this episode. We have a very, very special guest, a prolific author, TV producer, writer. Her name is Leslie Arfin. She's from Long Island. She created the show Love on Netflix with her husband, Paul Rust, who is uh, the star of the show, and the great producer, Judd Apatow. And she also wrote a book called Dear Diary. She wrote for Vice for, for years. She wrote music reviews. She was a writer on the Lena Dunham show, Girls. And uh, I really, really enjoyed talking to her. And here's a little fun fact, a little secret fact that you don't know about Dopey and the great Judd Apatow and This American Life. I'm just going to spill the beans right here for a second. This American Life wanted to make a dopey movie, and they pitched the great Judd Apatow, and Judd Apatow, in a huge mistake, a huge horrible decision, passed on producing the dopey movie. So Judd Apatow, we say, shame on you. 
And one day you'll be sorry. One day you will look back at that move and be like, I can't believe I passed on Dopey. But right now we have a very, very, very special interview with Leslie Arfin. All right, so this is very exciting. You're, the next guest is a very accomplished guest. And like I have to say, like I look up to you in a lot of ways, and we have a lot in common, except that she was smart and she moved away from Long Island and I moved to Long <laughs> Island, which is fucking ridiculous. Her name is Leslie Arfin. She's a brilliant painter, a brilliant writer, an addict in recovery, a mother, a wife. Welcome to Dopey. Oh my God. I love that you called me a painter first and foremost. I, that was a manipulative move. I, fig- I, figured you, I figured you'd like that. But your painting is good. I've been looking at your, uh, at your watercolors. They're beautiful. Thank you. I haven't painted in a while. What happened was when COVID started, I was like, oh my God, now I get to paint. And like, I, I'm never going to be bored. Like, I'll be painting all day long. And then I found Animal Crossing. <laughs> Oh, my God. You're addicted. See, I bought my daughter Animal Crossing this summer. She was like, Daddy, I want Animal Crossing, blah, blah, blah. So I bought it for her. She played it for like a day. And then yesterday she asked me if she could give it away. I was like, fuck you. You're not giving away Animal Crossing. It's not happening. Oh, my God. How old is she? She's. I have a 10-year-old and a 2-year-old. Oh. Yeah, it's a little bit... Like, it's super cute, but I wouldn't know if I'd be very interested in it if I was 10. What's the draw? What's the draw of Animal it's Crossing? Hoarding. Hoarding <laughs> is the draw. It's, it's, a, it's, it's about, like, there's no um, dire consequences. Like, you can't get out. It's, you're not playing against other people. It's not competitive. But it's competitive with yourself in that, you want to hoard a lot of items and then there's like really good items. It also is like visually beautiful and the sound is great. Like it's a very like cozy game. It's not, there's everything's round. It's very, it's very comfortable and, and like soothing in that way. But like the draw is creativity. It's a creative game. So it's like design architecture, which is called terraforming on the game and like spending fake money and buy and 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 getting a lot of stuff you're into it there's a lot of people into this animal this animal crossing and covid happened at a a brilliant time it was a brilliant combination for animal crossing genius them and the tiger king were probably the two biggest Uh, beneficiaries of covid um i know and i read and uh leslie wrote a book called dear diary it came out 13 years ago 12 years ago yeah, something like that. It's an amazing memoir. And I have to say, and this might fuck you up or something, the first thing about the book that really fucked me up was the way you talked about your dad in the book and the way I could be as a father. You're very critical of your dad in the book. And like mm-hmm. I find that I am like him sometimes. And like your book is going to give me... like an ability to be a better dad and not like I yell at my, at my daughter's friends sometimes, not like (laughs) aggressive yelling. I try to be like sticky when I yell at them, but not everybody gets that. You know what I'm saying? I am totally like my dad too. And like, I find myself like thinking and like wanting to talk shit about my daughter will be three in a couple of weeks. And yesterday I wanted to, be like, like she has this one friend and I just wanted to be like, and she really likes her. And I wanted to be like, your friend Jane is like, she's kind of creepy. I didn't say that. 
she's a, this, this, she's a child. She's a toddler. But like, first of all, I love my dad. And I was, we all do our best. He was doing his best. Well, before you even I say anything, before you even yeah. say anything, it has to be made clear that Leslie's book is this very brilliant idea of she wrote a diary when she was a kid and she answered the diary when she was in her late 20s and it was all part of a column she did for Vice magazine. So the criticism of, of the father came when you were 10 or 11 or 12, the, the first entries in the book. So you can't really be held accountable. You're a kid. But... And I could tell that you love your dad. It was like the first thing you said to me when we got on the phone that you you didn't want your your family to hear anything disparaging. And I and I lead <laughs> I off like, with it as you know. Obviously, like everybody has complicated feelings about their family, whether they're sober or not, in recovery or not, whatever. It's like families are fucking weird and tough, including my own current family. I mean, but like when I wrote the book. I really wanted always to have to write a book and I just wanted to be as like truthful as I could be for the sake of the book. And I didn't, I wasn't thinking about anybody else. I wasn't thinking about anybody who I had gone to school with my entire life. I wasn't thinking about anybody's privacy. I wanted, I was only thinking about me, myself and I, which is fine that I made that choice to do that. And I'm glad that I did. That said, I do, I, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus in terms of like the reality of telling a story versus like my life. Like, I don't blame anybody for, like, I don't blame anybody for who I am because like I love who I am. And I'm very clear now on like what that's about. And I don't hold anybody responsible or accountable but like you know there's always stuff that people go through where it's hard to it takes time to to forgive and at that point I think I had like five years sober when I wrote that book and I I did forgive but I wasn't it's a journey and it's like I have to constantly forgive over and over again and like and really like look at my part and all that but but I just didn't I just think I and this this isn't so much about my family I'm there were people who I wrote about in the book who I went to school with and like I hurt some of their feelings and I feel bad about that and I did it cuz that was my story and that was my truth and they had hurt my feelings back then but I'm not like, you know, as we get older, it's like, we're not really like pursuing revenge. Right, right. No, but it's not even also, it's not only about forgiving, it's about letting go and it's about moving on. You know what I mean? Like, and I didn't get, first of all, I love the book. I think the book is so fun and it's like, it's an amazing thing that you accomplished and it's cool as hell. And you should be proud of it. It's fucking awesome. And I recommend reading it. I think the listeners in Dopey Nation are going to love your book. So I just want to say that first. Secondly, it's not, it's not like you were using as a result of bad parenting or family stuff. That's not where the right. using even came from, in, in my estimation of reading the book, you know? Okay. Like, you remind- I haven't read it in a while. I haven't read it in a while. It's hard to read it. Well, it's fucking really hard because it's from you as a kid and then you as a young yeah. adult who's still a kid, basically. Yeah. 
when I was 27, that, I was a fucking piece of shit kid when I was 27, personally. Know, right? <laughs> There's also, like, the separation of the experience of having gone through that in life, coupled with the experience of writing it and how that was its own journey. And, like, it's very hard to write a book. And, like, you know, half of it was already written because I had been looking back at diaries so i can't imagine how hard it is to write like a real book but that's convenient right the fact that you have the diary you're like holy shit i got half of this covered already and i can't criticize no one can criticize that voice because she was fucking 11 or 15 or on heroin you know those are all great excuses (laughs) for the entries not to be perfectly written and you have half the book i mean i i you know, I've been trying to write something forever and I, I'm like killing myself. But you're an inspiration to me, even if you're not an inspiration to yourself. So, no, yeah, but do you have, do you, I am an inspiration to myself. I just, the thing I don't, the main thing I don't love about the book is that there's a lot of pop culture references. So it's very vicey in that way. And right. like I like talk about Bush and, you know, food not bombs and like stuff that's a little dated, <laughs> which. I don't love, and as a writer, I don't love doing that or relying on that, but I'm a different writer now, so so that was very vice at the time. It's also a time capsule in a way, you know, right. and I think my first lesson is not to yell at my friend, kids' friends because I do that, and my daughter's like, Daddy, you can't yell at my friends. And I, and I think I'm being like the funny Jewish funny dad who's like is is, for, is feeling close to them so I can yell at them. But I'm not doing it anymore because of you, Leslie. Like, what kind of yelling do you do with them? Are you like, don't write on the wall? Like, well, she has one friend who's been coming around since she was like two. You know what I mean? Like, she used to go on vacation with us, and and like she's very spacey, and like she won't get to the car fast enough, and I'll be like, Elizabeth. We got to go. Yeah. Let's go. You know, but I'll say it. I, I lose patience. You know, I'm, I'm like a dad. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like a little bit of a dick to Elizabeth. And so I like to. Yeah, but that's because you like her. I love her. I love Elizabeth. You love her. I do. I do. There's a difference. There's a difference. But this is, a, saying so. this is an important point. Jewish families often yell in, in love. You know, there's a lot of yeah. action in love. Totally. There's a difference, and there was some, there's, you know, there's yelling with love, and then there's yelling to defend your kid, and there's nothing wrong with either one of those things, but when I was 12, 11, 12, 13, I was very embarrassed. Now, as a parent, I understand it, and I... I get it. I think the idea of being embarrassed plays a big part in our story because I do feel this weird connection to you because I think being cool was a big piece of the puzzle. You know what I mean? And like, yeah. and like being, I mean, you, you like, I mean, I did too. My, my like path to trying to be cool came a little bit later than yours did. When you were a kid, like you were initial like very very quickly into bands and subculture and and drugs because like you probably and and correct me if i'm wrong the embarrassment or the the self-awareness was overwhelming and you wanted to shut that shit up so you did whatever you could to not you know to be you but be undercover right totally i mean yeah i did get into all that stuff at a really young age when i was in sixth grade and this is like you know we talk about this in the book but I was just like, boom, every, like all my friends turned against me, like sixth grade, like total, totally ousted, 
just like had that experience. I was really popular with all the kids at my school. But that said, I always felt like a little different. And I don't think I'm alone in feeling that, you know, alcoholic or not. But there was like a lot of wanting to be popular, wanting to fit in, not wanting to feel left out. That was a huge, huge concern of mine, wanting wanting to be part of. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's my experience that like fears are wishes. And it was my biggest fear to get in a fight with somebody, be disliked and and. That leads to a lot of people-pleasing. It leads to a lot of dishonesty. It leads to a lot of not being inauthentic. And, and you know, you're 11 years old. How, how We don't even know what, what being authentic is. But, like, we do, know what, we do know what honesty is. We know that from a very young age. And, like, that wasn't as important to me as, like, ma- making sure everybody liked me. Well, it's amazing. So, I think what's amazing too is that at 11, the only thing you can be is authentic. You can only be right. your genuine self. You know, the thing that that 12 step promises us to be this we're going to find our truest self. And at 11, you were like, fuck, my, I'm tired of my truest self. I need to, to, to get out of my head. Right. I mean, that's when it started. Or, or I was afraid that my truest self wasn't good enough, commercially appealing. Right. Wasn't good enough. And that was a huge fear of mine. And as a result, I, my fear was a wish. And like my friends caught on. And, you know, be, people pleasing dishonesty, I mean, that looks like shit talking. That looks like gossip. That looks like being uh, leaving other people out. You know, does anybody deserve that to happen to them when they're 11 or 12 years old? No. Was I probably like a little bit high on my own supply? Sure. Sure, of course. Like I played a part, but I was a, I was a child. We were all children, you know. When did you when did you start uh when did things start to like go? Like when do you remember the first drunk or the first uh time you got high? My favorite my favorite story from yours in the early days was like there's a diary entry that basically said you did E crystal meth <laughs> fucking ketamine and and something else all on the same day and it was like very casual in the entry and when you wrote back you were like it was actually the same day so like when did it start happening in the first place so that that day that was when i went to my first rave and i was in 11th grade and that was really when things took off but when i was like eight nine ten so my my dad was a liquor salesman and my grandfather owned a liquor company and they weren't, it wasn't that we had a huge drinking family, but we just, we always had different kinds of wine and liquor in our house because my dad was a salesman. So we would get like, he would sell like Kahlua. And so we, and like, remember when, how cool Absolute Vodka was? Yes. And like those ads? Yes. We had them. Like we had like the Absolute Vodka t-shirts and like the cutouts. Like that was like the coolest thing about my dad at that time is because he was a salesman. And so we had this Caroline's, it was called. I don't know if they still, I'm sure they still make it. It's like a, a liqueur, like a creamy coffee liqueur thing. And we had it in the fridge and because um, it was like a sample or whatever. And I smelled it and I, it smelled really good to me. But no, 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 you can't drink that. It has booze in it. But then one day after school, fifth grade, 
I nobody was home or they were in a different room and I smelled it and I wanted to try it and I did and then I and then the next day I I did it again and I instead of doing a capful I did a spoonful and then I did two spoonfuls and like for a while after school every day I was like I really liked this feeling I really liked this there was something that I was feeling that was like a little buzz and then my dad said, why is this like half empty? And I never did it again for until, you know, it was in high school because I was so, and, and nobody was drinking it. I was drinking it. Like no one in my family drinks that shit, you know? And he was like, why? This was like full like a week ago. And I, I mean, I drank a lot. And after school, I would get buzzed by myself. And I didn't remember that until I was, uh, looking at the allergy recently in the first step or whatever. And I was like, Oh my God. Like I, I, yeah, like that was really like the first time, but I think it's interesting. Cause you, you, when you talk about people not liking you in the first place or commercially appealing and like, but your whole career has strayed away from like being commercially appealing in general. You know what I mean? Like you came up in the hardcore scene, like which is a very like off the beaten path scene. It's not like all the cool kids don't go into the hardcore scene. And then you, right. then you got into the rave scene and then you went to Hampshire and then you worked for Vice and, and even girls, I'm sorry, even uh, love is like all of those things are like under the radar because you knew under the radar was cooler than commercially thing. Yes and no. I think that I think it has less to do with knowing that that stuff is cool and what I'm my ability and what I'm capable of doing, right? So like I like I got into the hardcore scene because I was very angry and very sad and I didn't and like color me bad only like took me so far. Right, right, right. So when I first heard music, that was like how I felt. I was like, oh my God, like this fucking rules. And I and I found that there was like, there were magazines and stuff that looked like that was when I was younger, like that looked cool. Like these looked like people who, yeah, all of our friends, we were losers in high school, like Spike Jones and like, you know, they did Beastie Boys. I love the Beastie Boys. So like I... I found the Beastie Boys when I was very young through my sister, but also I was getting into rap and rediscovering nostalgia, like discovering nostalgia for the first time, like in eight in the nineties, I was like, Oh, the eighties. Like I remember. So, and the Beastie Boys at that time were very subculture skateboarding. Yeah. And these, and I would read Project X magazine and Grand Royal magazine and Paper magazine and people who I thought were cool and pretty and living in New York City, looking cool and so confident were like, I was a fucking loser in, in school. And it was like, dude, really? Like, they they weren't popular. Like, they were uncool. Like, they turned, that's when I discovered punk. What's punk? I want to discover punk, you know? So, like, I don't know if it's still there, but there's a store called Utopia in Huntington that sold, like, incense and seven inches. <laughs> and my best friend Allie's dad would drive us there, and we would, like, explore. And we were all, you know, it was, like, it was sweet. We were, like, let's get this mushroom necklace. And, like, we didn't know what mushrooms were. And I would get a seven-inch base on if I thought the cover looked cool. 
And then there was bands that I liked. And then I was like, oh, they're playing. I'm like, I was also good. I, I, I'm good at making friends. I like people. I mean, I hate people, but I like people. And so I made friends. I went to my first show. It was in Huntington. I had a backpack on. My parents dropped me off or something. I mean, all this is to say, even like love and like Hampshire and all that. I applied to Hampshire because they, you didn't need, you didn't get graded and you didn't have to take tests. So I was like, oh, I want to go there. (laughs) Like I wanted to do writing, but I wasn't a good student. Like, there's nothing cool about that. But we're talking about the thing that you're not talking about is the, the quality of subculture, you know. And I and I was mm-hmm. down, and I loved all that stuff too. You know what I mean? Like I was, I wasn't into hardcore. I was into like reggae music and ska music and and that kind of stuff growing up. I'm like five years older than you, and I grew up in Manhattan, and I played in bands, and I did all that stuff too, and I lived for the Beastie Boys. You know what I mean? Like I right. I can relate to all this stuff, and I and I went down to Sullivan Street and bought posters and seven inches and mm-hmm. and and like rare fucking old '60s ska records and shit. You know, like, and you grew up in Manhattan. Yeah, I grew up in Chelsea. Oh, you were like already like. But I so cool. But I went to the nerdiest school in the world. Um, and what Hunter Hunter Elementary School and Hunter High School? It's like the, the most nerdy school that ever existed. And uh, and I wasn't like the smartest kid in Hunter. I was like the dumbest kid in Hunter. <laughs> and I also just had a certain sort of like I had a core friend group, but I was dorky and like you know what I mean like seeking whatever I could seek but the thing and everyone from Hunter everybody went to Wesleyan or Vassar or Hampshire or Oberlin or whatever I wound up going to Ithaca College for no good reason and I basically got kicked out and I transferred to Purchase and Purchase is basically oh my god Purchase is legendary yeah Purchase was so cool in the 90s well that's I was there I was there from 96 to I was there from 94 to 96 Um, payday Heyday. But I also tried my first heroin at Purchase. And the other thing... Well, exactly. But that's the other thing we're, t- we're not talking about is like right. so half of the subculture doesn't become hardcore crazy drug addicts. And then part of it does. And you and I both did. And a huge population of the kids at Purchase wanted to be these crazy writers and these crazy artists and they didn't pay attention in school. Um was that how you were when you were in school wanting to be a writer? Well, doing good at school, doing getting good grades doesn't make you a good writer. Living a full life and taking and having experiences makes you a good writer. So I need to have all the experiences. And I was scared. Like I was also scared to do drugs and try stuff, but I was like, but this is who I want to be. And I was very, very curious. Like the first time I smoked weed was in eighth grade. And it didn't work the first time. I didn't feel anything. And so I was like, I mean, I wrote about this in the book, but I was like, well, I didn't feel anything. So can I just do acid? Like I so badly wanted to feel, I wanted the experience of uh, what it was like, what, what everybody was, was talking about. No, I, right? I did acid before I smoked weed. You just, it's like that, <laughs> it's that first thing that you just want to add it to you and you're changed completely, radically changed. Right. Um, you also wrote about not loving weed that much anyway, like that weed was never your kind of thing. No, I didn't like it. It wasn't, I could take it or leave it alone. I could take it or leave it alone. So I don't, weed is not, I don't smoke weed now. I haven't, and it's a drug. I don't, 
I abstain. <laughs> what was your first love in terms of drugs? And I want to say something else, Leslie. Before we started, Leslie said she was a little fearful about coming on Dopey, <laughs> which is beautiful to me because I didn't think anybody really cared either way. But I love that you care. And just know that our audience is just a bunch of drug addicts. Some are in recovery. Some are still using. They can relate. They all have a drug that they really loved. So what was your first love in terms of a substance? This my first drug love was ecstasy. Yes. So I had, I had had experiences with drinking, but what I really liked was whiskey. Whiskey made me feel a certain feeling, but as I only had, I had whiskey on two occasions. One was that like whiskey liqueur I talked about. And then the other was like an eighth grade or something like in the woods. I like tried whiskey for the first time, but it was very hard to come by because we were all underage. So when people did drink, which was rare, it was like beer or Zima or like, I wasn't, it wasn't like a big thing. I would, I like sometimes I would drink a little like Manischewitz because it was so sweet. I liked it, but mostly I didn't like the taste of booze. And also, people in straight edge weren't doing that, and people in hardcore weren't doing that. But I had one friend who was my really good friend in the hardcore scene, who went to college. She graduated high school and went to college, and I went. And she was so cool. My older, cooler friend loved her. So smart, so well read. Went to a small college in Massachusetts, and she had become like a little bit of a raver. Like it wasn't a far stretch from hardcore scene to rave because the places where we would have hardcore shows were in warehouses, and that's where raves were. So like, and we wore kind of similar sized clothes. Yes. You know what I mean? And like, like yeah, big pants and small shirts, kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, and, and like in Long Island, subcultures kind of um, are like one degree away from separation a little bit. We all kind of find each other. Well, that's I, you, you wrote. You wrote about the tribes all having weed in common. That was the only thing that yeah. subcultures have in common, which I love that quote. But continue, please. I love that too, and like that was true, and so that I I liked that about pot it being the common denominator. Totally, I I love that idea that metalheads and you know hippies and ravers and hardcore kids and whoever hip hop people all got together from weed, and back then there was no internet. You know, like you'd have to, you have to read the back of the Village Voice or find flyers for shows. That's how you found out about things. We're from, we're from flyers of like Tower Records, and there'd be a flyer for a hardcore show, and then there'd be a flyer for a rave. And my best friend's older brother was a raver, and he was. We loved the we loved the flyers for raves because they looked like um, like Care Bears, but it would be like E Bears, like you know. It was never designed seen anything like that. It was designed for children to fall in love with this. Yes. It was like dangerous yes. but total familiar, you know, which is what got us all in these subcultures. It was a, a design, right? You know, I love that. So Cynthia, who is my friend in hardcore, went to college, and she got. She became like a little bit of a raver and I went to visit her and I was a hardcore kid. I had never done anything. I hadn't, 
I, it was not a part of my life, but Cynthia was like, we're going to go to a rave. And I was like, all right. Like, I thought it was corny at that point, like in 11th grade. Like, I thought it was cool when I was younger and I liked the flyers. But in 11th grade, I was so such a hardcore kid snob. I thought it was like a little corny. And she was like, whatever, just come. It's re- it's corny, but it's really fun. And we're going to do ecstasy. And like, you'll see, you'll be safe. Like, it's not dangerous. Fine. I was like, I'm down. I would do anything Cynthia said because she was smart and pretty and cool. And so I remember walking into this rave and I was like, cool, like lights, people dancing to techno, like, wow, like totally unimpressed. And then took this pill that, Cynthia and her friends all took. We took them at the same time. I had no idea what to expect. And it was beyond my wildest dreams. Right. Yes. And the next thing you know, you're making out with everybody, right? You're making out. So out of my face. I mean, God forbid I should ever see my daughter like that or anyone. Because <laughs> ecstasy was the first thing I loved, but I did it so much. It then turned on me. I'm like, I stopped doing it in college and have never, and never looked back. How did it turn like, on you? it started working in reverse. Like, you know how on ecstasy, like you love everybody and you dance and you have the best time. And it was like, the ecstasy started changing a little bit. I think as we also got older, where it would become like when I would do it at raves, it wasn't always super dopey. It was like, there was that part of it, but it wasn't always like massagey. Like, no, I know. Sometimes it was speedy and not comfortable yeah. and not fun. I, I when I, I never did too much ecstasy. I always did. I think I did just the right amount of ecstasy because I loved it, and uh, yeah. and I love dopey ecstasy, um, which probably right. you know conditioned me to becoming a heroin addict and probably helped name the podcast Dopey because Dopey Ecstasy right. is like it's just it was the greatest thing. But I was scared. I knew that it was too intense. And too not like life for me to do too much of it. So exactly, it it started to get a little bit too intense in terms of the physical feeling. Like in college, we would do it, and I, it would like that peak would happen, and I was like, oh, okay, let's just like get this part over with, and then like I'm remembering the last time I ever did it, and then everybody was like touching each other and like loving each other and these were my friends who were like pretty like badass punk like gnarly fun college friends and they were being all lovey and I was like grossed out I was like I don't like this I don't like this I don't like looking at myself like this physically I mean I felt fine physically but it was still like a little hand tingly and too intense right I didn't want to hang out with anybody I didn't want anyone to touch me I wanted to be alone and I wanted it to be over. And when it was over, I was like, I'm good. Never again. And chronologically, that's basically when it was like cue the heroin, right? And basically the first time you did heroin was in college anyway. You were you were fucking around with all sorts of drugs and, and one of your roommates or something wound up selling heroin, right? Yeah. Well, the thing that I will say about the ecstasy is that I did it so much, I felt like it had run its course. But another thing I always did consistently from that point was like ecstasy I would do a lot, but it was like a party drug. But like most of the time I I drank and did coke. Aha. Uh-huh. That was always consistent. 
And then I had tried heroin the summer right before I went to college with a friend and I hated it. I just felt like nauseous and tired and like, all right, at least I tried it. Now I know. Thank God I know. I don't like it. I had the same exact reaction when I first tried heroin. Exactly the same. I was like, I don't need it. It doesn't suit me. I just threw up. I wound up like hooking up with somebody that I didn't plan on hooking up with and woke up like covered in vomit next to somebody. I was like, what the fuck is this? And then, you know, and I didn't do it again forever. When was the time you did it the next time? Well, as like a true alcoholic, it's like maybe this time will be different. Right. So like I was a sophomore in college and we would drink all the time and do coke all the time and smoke weed and like whatever we can get our hands on, which like wasn't easy at that time because there weren't people weren't taking like painkillers. People weren't selling painkillers. That wasn't really a thing. Occasionally somebody might get a benzo. There was a Ritalin, but like I never really was into it. And in Ma- I went to school in Massachusetts and they don't sell alcohol on Sundays. And so we would of course buy booze on Saturday or Friday and think that it would last us the entire weekend. And by, of course, by Sunday, anything that I had tried to save for Sunday was out. And we would do cocaine when we can get it from like a UMass kid or something. I barely did any coke in college. It wasn't my thing and it was way too expensive. And it was usually shitty because we didn't have like good connects in Massachusetts or whatever. And so my friend who I lived with was like, you know, we were just bored on a Sunday night. And he was like, you know, it would be so cool if we could do dope. And and we were like, yeah, like, oh, that would be cool. That would be fun. Like, just saying it out loud. And then this girl who lived with us, and this was new. This was early in the year. And so we met, but it was maybe like October or something or September. And we never saw her. Even though she lived with us, she was super, super shy and super goth. And always had her hair in front of her face and talked with her hands over her mouth. Always. It's like a movie, though. It's like it's like you never yeah. talk to her. She only. It's like weird science or something. The dude that totally. lives in the closet and she shows up when you need dope. And what did she say? And she was like, she comes out of the room like 15 <laughs> minutes later or something. We've never exchanged any words with her other than like, hey, nice to meet you, whatever. And she was like, um, did you guys say you were, you wanted, you were looking for dope? And we were like, yeah, why? And she was like, <laughs> you know, like, oh God. And she was like, cause I like, <laughs> like sell it. And we were like, what? And suddenly we were like, Asha, 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 you know, like all about like best friends with Asha. I bet you that was the best moment of her college career was the moment that she was selling dope and you guys needed it. Yeah, it was $10 for a a little bag. And there was, the the bag wasn't full. I mean, like, it was a dime bag and it was, just had a little bit in it. And so it was $10 and a very little bit goes a long way for a while when you're first starting out doing it. 
it was probably decent too, and you guys had no tolerance. Right. right? Yeah. So I'm sure like five of you could get high off a bag, one tiny little, tiny little bit. Right. Yeah. We would do it together. And then I remember it was January break. And so we stayed at school and I remember Asha had left. She was gone. And we were like, well, we're, it's fine. Like, what are we going to, like, there was, I remember the first night or something, we didn't have it. And we felt sick, but like not that sick. It was like, I felt, we felt uncomfortable and it was hard to sleep. And I remember like, I would wake up with the bruises because I was like involuntarily like kicking the wall a little bit, but it wasn't like enough that we were. And then me and my boyfriend were like, I think that we're kicking. And we were like, oh my God, that's it. That's all withdrawal is like, that was not that bad. And I was like, I know. That totally wasn't that bad. That's crazy. Like, that's the big, you know, that's the big secret about problem, whatever, about heroin is that the withdrawal is so bad. Like, like, oh, my God, what a lie. And so when Asha came back, we, like, dived right in and then started shooting it. How quickly did you start shooting it? Pretty quickly. Yeah. I, think, I mean, like, don't you think that's the funniest yeah. thing, though, about withdrawal and, and just the way heroin heroin is obviously a substance. It's not a person. It doesn't think things. It doesn't have any intentions for what's going to happen to you when you do it. But there's just some weird quality to kicking the first time and our minds thinking that it's not that bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that we can handle it. And, and I, I, I wonder if part of it is that in the beginning you're not that attached to it. You know what I mean? Like it's not built into your lifestyle, your identity, your whole purpose, you know, right. like, or, or maybe it's the longer you use, the worse the withdrawal is. I'm sure that's a piece. Of I mean, it. I also think that we, our tolerance wasn't that high yet. Like I wasn't doing it a lot, but mostly like we, I still was, I was still able to make like a little go a long way. It wasn't, it was, I mean, that was one of the questions I had written down kind of, which was, when does it go from using or from getting high to being an addict? Like somebody asked me to write about when I knew I was an addict and I still haven't written about it. Like when did you know you were an addict? Well, when I knew, when I knew there's like a, you know, there's two questions. Like when I knew I was an addict and like when I became an addict, you know what I mean? Like I think that I have always been Mm -hmm. when I knew I was an addict I think was probably, I can't imagine it wasn't my junior year of college, but I remember, I definitely knew I was an addict my junior year of college, but that I didn't, it didn't bother me that I was. It was only my senior year of college where I made active attempts to stop and could not. And you made it through college addicted to heroin. I mean, that's pretty impressive in itself. Oh, I mean, I made it through college like I don't know I remember I even told one of my professors that I was a heroin addict I went but like it's Hampshire right it's like you get extra credit for being a junkie at Hampshire or something right no I had like this big like art show at college that like incorporated photography and writing and I 
worked really hard on it, but like, it's not like I was doing anything extremely difficult or moving around a lot. Like I was like making collages and like writing like shitty poetry. I think I mean, it's, maybe it, some it, what I'm, what I'm really interested also in is cause you're a funny person. Like you love comedy and yet you were yeah. drawn to this crazy, like that is not a funny scene. The, the poetry photography heroin scene isn't like birthing a lot of comedy writers. So like, where does the comedy fit in with the art and where was it then? The thing is, is that comedy does fit into that. Comedy fits in everywhere. And I wasn't, I never thought of myself as a funny person or a comedy writer at all. Um, I had a lot of funny friends and me and my friends were, I mean, in college, like all of us, even the, we, my whole house, I mean, we all did heroin at that point. Yes. When you're on heroin, you're not funny and things are pretty boring. I just, so, think, it, I just think it's cool. Like that you, that, cause most people in that scene don't come into comedy. So I think that makes, right. it's a very original thing. It's very unique and it's unpredictable. Well, I always, yeah, it was unpredictable to me too. I always wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to be a poet. I just liked writing poetry. I also wrote short fiction and like essays and stuff. Like I, I was trying creative nonfiction. I was trying to like figure out what kind of writing I liked the most. And then I think when I did my final project at school, I did poetry probably because I thought it was, it wouldn't be as much work. Right. Like, cause I was a heroin addict and like, I didn't care about doing the as much work but also, I'm sober today, and like, it's not like I live to work. <laughs> I think I do live to work now. It's fucked up. How did you dial in your style? Like, what was what was the big influence? What happened? I they would they had Vice magazine at the school store, and we would read it, and I thought it was so funny, and so I just loved it. It was like my favorite magazine. I thought it was so so funny, so great. And I was like, this is the kind of writing I want to do. Cause it was like, it was writing in a magazine, but it, and I guess it was like journalism, but it wasn't really journalism at that time. It was like, a, it was like zine writing. Yes. Like that's what I loved the most was like, I made zines like all throughout college, all throughout high school, zines, zines, zines. And those were like funny and sad and all of that. And so magazines were still relevant at that point. But I didn't want to write. I didn't. I wasn't academic enough to write for anything serious or to write in the normal way. And then I read Vice, and I was like, "Oh, this is like a really cool, glossy magazine." And I'm reading it, and it feels like I'm reading my friend Zine, but it's hilarious. It's not like a shitty Zine. But wasn't it almost your friend Zine? Like, what was the connection? Like, was it a Hampshire magazine? Like, what was the connection? No, I didn't know anybody who worked at Vice at that point. Nobody. And me and Jesse read it and we loved it. And I knew nothing. And then what happened was, is that Jesse graduated earlier than me because he's a couple of years older and when he graduated college, he started working, he moved to New York City and he started working at this magazine called Index, mm-hmm. which was amazing mm-hmm. back in the day. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was very cool, like a very cool job for Jesse. And Jesse was also, he's also a writer and graphic designer and 
knows how to, he's very smart and knows how to do a lot of things. Um, and he was a heroin addict too. Yeah. And so he's living in New York, working at this very cool magazine. I'm still at Hampshire, but he's still my best friend. And I talked to him a lot and he's like, oh, I met Gavin McGinnis. How apropos that we're talking about this today, but we're not going to. Anyway, I met Gavin and I'm like, who's Gavin McGinnis? You know, he's like the dude who owns Vice. I met him. I'm like friends with him. And I was like, no way. And he was like, he's so funny. He's so cool. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like, I can't wait for you to meet him. And so I went on a week, like for a weekend, I went to visit Jesse in New York. And like, I met Gavin that weekend. I met my friend, Amy Kellner, who now works at New York Times magazine. Like, and we were all like young 20 somethings. And I, we were all doing drugs and like partying. And like, I remember we just went out and we went dancing. I hooked up with Gavin, which is like insane to me because never again did that happen. And our relationship was never again like that. But we were just like, he, like we immediately, like he immediately like embraced me as a friend and Amy Kellner is still my friend and we just had the best time. And and then I, and then I, then Jesse came to visit me at college and he brought Gavin with him and like we became friends. And so when I graduated from college, I was then, there was no texting. Um, there was email, but I call, I would call Gavin on the phone and I would just talk. Like we would just talk not, it wasn't like super long phone calls. They were just like shooting the shit. And then I was like, can I come intern for you at Vice when I graduate? And he was like, yeah. There were six people who worked at Vice in Brooklyn, and Gavin was the editorial staff. Right. I thought that there was a female writer named Christy Bradnox who worked there. So there was this article called The Vice Guide to Eating Pussy Yes. by Christy Bradnox, and I was just like, this is so funny. This is so funny. This is like, I want to write like this woman. Like, this is like the kind of writing I want to do. What a badass. How cool. And then I found out it was just Gavin and he used to use fake names so that advertisers would think that Vice had a bigger staff, that he wasn't writing every single article, that it was, so he just used a bunch of fake names. I mean, later on, I used to do music reviews and every music review I ever did was under a fake name. And then we all started doing that and then it became like so obvious because the names would be really funny. Right. And when you got into it, when you got the internship, how strung out were you? Were you strung out? Were you, you, that was when you were living on the Lower East Side? Yeah. And I was, I wasn't strung out. I was an active heroin addict making it work. I was. How did you make it work? I did it. I bought it and I did it and I did it in the bathroom and I wouldn't, every time I did heroin, I wasn't like shooting up either. And every time I did it, I wasn't like ass out on the floor. I would do it to maintain not getting sick. I wasn't always getting high, but like I was getting a little bit, like I was very like, like I would like chip away all day. Like anytime I went to the bathroom, I'm like, just a little bit, just a little bit. And like, it was everything. I mean, it helped me do everything I was afraid of. Yes. When, you know, when when I when I became addicted to it, I was producing uh, a tiny TV show, 
And, um, you know, I was just going from production assistant to associate producer in this tiny place. And I, I had gotten a deal where I got some money and I was like, I can afford to do it now. And I was also like on camera and I was like, I need to, I kind of needed to do it cause I was so scared and I was so like anxious and I just felt a lot of fear and I knew dope. It made me feel like I worked at Vice Magazine. You know what I mean? Like it made me feel yeah. like I was cool and I didn't have to care and blah, blah, blah. And um, I didn't chip away though. Like as soon as, as soon as I had money, I was like way too deep into it. And, um, and I lost my job immediately. I think chipping might have been like a secret weapon you had. Well, I was also like very hoardy with my drugs and like that was like part of my that's a part of my disease and my addiction is that like no matter what anybody was doing I always had to have my own whether it was coke or booze or weed or anything like I always had to have like my own little stash and my own little instruments and like my own thing and it was in a little place and I didn't talk about it. I didn't show it to anybody. I had, it, it, it was very private thing. So it was like, I also, you know, it was still $10 a bag. So I worked at Vice. I was an intern there. I didn't make any money, but I was, I worked retail and I tempt. I always got fired from temping. I mean, look, this isn't to say that I never got fired from Vice, but there was nothing there was no there's nothing to fire me from. I was never on payroll at Vice. I was a temp and then I was an intern and then I was a freelance writer. So any money I made, any money they paid me was money that I worked for. I gave them words and they gave me money per word. And I was able to write, but the writing that I was doing was like fanzine writing. It was really fun and it was easy. And then I would work retail and get fired. And then I would work at another, re- I mean, I had, I was a stylist assistant. I was a coat check. I was a DJ. Like, you know, I had, I can't, I had so many jobs, so many jobs. Me too. Also I, like I, temporary I because I didn't. My rent, I had a roommate. Um, my parents helped me out with rent. This was right before 9-11. Rent wasn't that expensive either. I think my rent, I mean, it was at the time, but I think I paid like, I don't know, $800 a month with a roommate in the Lower East Side. It's like four grand now, but continue. Right. Yeah. And then I also stole things. And... I didn't pay for food. I stole food all the time. And then I sold drugs. Oh, my God. But this is all after 9-11. And, like, 9-11 happened. No, when 9-11 happened, I was selling drugs. I I was selling coke. Where were you on 9-11? Tell me the story. So I was, like, hungover. Now, the first thing I thought of was, like, oh, my God, everything's going to shut down. I have to call my dude and go over there now and get all the money that I can as much cash as I have. Did you wind up stockpiling heroin that day or no? Yeah. 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 And then I saw, I went outside, you know, I walked two blocks and saw everybody walking, going to walk over the Williamsburg Bridge. And I ran into people that I knew and I said, do you want to buy Coke? 
and they did. And that, so I was definitely making money that way too. I remember like I made some, I would make so much money with Coke that I would buy Chanel. All right. Paint me a picture. You're dealing Coke. You have Coke. What was going on in your head at that point? I was so paranoid anyway, because I'd Coke all over me. I'd Coke in my pores. I like put a couch in front of the door and then I was doing it and then I would trade it for heroin. Were you speedballing too? I never did that. Why not? I didn't know how. It's very easy to put them together and shoot it. But I didn't, you mean like in a yeah. syringe? Yeah. I just didn't know like how, like what amounts, like. That's fascinating. I have no idea what you're, amount. you had so much Coke and so much heroin and you never shot a speedball. That's like having a room full of chocolate and jars of peanut butter and never thinking to put the two together. It's insane. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. I was like very afraid of overdosing, but mainly afraid of getting an air bubble in my vein and dying. Like that's what I remember being afraid of. That's like, but that's, I think, I think William Burroughs wrote that if, if every junkie could die of an air bubble, the, yeah. the, the, you know, the graveyards would be full of these dead junkies. It's, I was afraid I of it too. I, but, like, not that afraid. I didn't know anything. Yeah. When I did, I also, like, even though I shot it, I didn't shoot it every single day all the time. I was afraid of doing it by myself that I wouldn't know and I would fuck it up and die alone. So I would do it usually with, sometimes I did it by myself, but I was, like, very, like, get an alcohol thing, clean it. Like, I was so... By the book. Yes, I was, like, very, like, if I'm going to do this, I'm not, like... Being like, I want to do it like procedural. Like I was into that though. Yes. Like I'm doing it a clean way. Like I'm doing it the right way. Like I'm not doing it like a dirt bag way. Like I take showers. I have alcohol swabs. Like I'm a scientist. Like I, you know, like super clinical. I got it. Yeah. When did it get to the point where you knew you couldn't do it anymore? Oh my God. I mean, it had been at that point. Like I, like I said, I tried to stop doing it my last year in college. That was the first time I ever went to an AA meeting or an NA meeting. I went to therapy. I thought the AA meeting was like boring and I didn't like it and I didn't feel comfortable. I mean, I went to one meeting in Northampton, Massachusetts with like a friend of mine who was mandated to be there. And I was like, this is stupid. And then I went to a therapist who was like, okay, so every time you use, I went to her cause I wanted her to help me get off heroin. And she was like, every time you use, I just want you to tell me like, you don't have to stop, but you just have to tell me. And I was like, okay. So every time I went there, I was like, uh, yeah, i high right now I used and then she was like why don't you try you know like some kava kava tea that doesn't work no I don't know, I don't know how people even equate kava kava tea with heroin um I, I remember didn't know. I went to treatment in Florida and Delray coming off of heroin and they opened like a kava kava bar and I was like this is going to be great and I, I went to the uh, kava kava bar and I was I just nothing happened for me um, so how did you, what, what was it that changed? I mean, like you have to understand that I'm, I'm talking to Leslie Orphan. She's sitting in her beautiful house, eating raspberries. Her three-year-old <laughs> is in nursery school. You have a beautiful life. Um, but obviously raspberries, how luxurious, how luxurious. I'm sure they're organic <laughs> raspberries. Um, <laughs> They're not organic. I, you know, my wife doesn't let me buy non-organic raspberries. She's like convinced that raspberries are the one. Raspberries and strawberries. If I bring home 
fucking not organic raspberries and strawberries, she loses her mind. Why? What's what's wrong with them? She's, I don't even know the difference. Don't even, don't listen to me. I mean, what they say is that they're more susceptible to pesticides or whatever. I don't know. I don't. Uh, I don't believe any of that. I mean, I you know, I've I've eaten so many things that is that isn't organic and done so many things obviously in my lifetime that was not particularly healthy that I don't really bug out about organic raspberries. And obviously, I don't you know, even always wash them. Well, there you go. You're not so clinical. You're not so clinical with your raspberry eating there. No alcohol swabs. No nothing. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm like, ah, they're fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm a lot different now. Well, what was your question? Oh, how did I know when it was like time to stop? Yeah. Well, one, my tolerance was now high. And I needed a lot more to get me selling the Coke and like all that stuff really escalated it because I was making more money. My, I was doing more Coke. The Coke was very, very good. I would not do Coke without doing dope. Um, I lost a lot of weight and I really wanted, this is the first time I really, I didn't want I didn't want to stop using, I didn't want to stop doing drugs forever. I just wanted, I wanted a break. I wanted my tolerance to go down. And I also didn't know anything about addiction. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. It wasn't, I wasn't familiar with, I didn't know anybody who was sober really at that point. And it wasn't something that we had it a lot in our family. Like we didn't have people in our family who were alcoholics or drug addicts or went to rehab or whatever. Like I knew of people who went to rehab when they were like 14 and it was like, well, they're like bipolar and their parents don't know what to do or something. So I wanted my tolerance to go down. My friend Marlene told my mom that I was doing heroin I was, I hadn't, I didn't, I was like really sick one day. I called my mom. I told her she was pissed at me. She was like, come home now. I had a cat. What do I do with the cat? She was like, go find somebody to watch the cat and then come home. So of course, like, you know, three days later (laughs) or whatever. It was like, I came home like 12 hours later because I had to find someone to watch the cat. Mm-hmm. And then she, we went to a family therapist and my parents were just both, they were so mad at me. They were just so mad at me. What, how could you do this? You know, you know, you're so much, you're smart. You did the stupidest thing. Like, you know, it's so dangerous. And I also think that they were shocked, even though my friend had told my mom, like, I think my mom didn't want to believe it was heavy in denial and we were at this therapy session and I was just like crying and then I went to this place called South Oaks sure do you remember it it's near here I mean everybody at the meetings comes from South Oaks but it doesn't I thought it wasn't there anymore I don't know they all talk about it I've never been there I well I was so scared I suddenly was like in this van 
and I was like, well, can my mom come with me? Like I was still like, and they were like, no, like this is where you have to say goodbye to your mom. And I was 21 and I was like crying and it was like, you know, I'm getting in like a scary van going to like a rehab. I don't even know what that means. And then I, you know, I'm like fucking 90 pounds wearing Mark by Mark Jacobs jeans and I go into South Oaks and it's like, oh my God, gnarly. Serious, serious drug addicts. Serious. Serious. Yeah. They were like, you only did a bundle a day? Like, you're a baby. Like, go back out there and like, see what it's really about. I mean, there were so many characters in there. It was so, so gnarly. I was really scared. People were very nice to me. And then they gave me methadone and I was fine. And I went to meetings. This, I was there for 10 days because we had meetings, we had family therapy, we had group therapy. I'm on methadone. I didn't, I, this is, this is, then they said, you know, you have to go to AA. And I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. And that was like a whole thing. And I was like, I roll. I also had no idea what methadone was like so I'm on methadone and I'm like I'm I'm good I'm leaving like I feel great I know you weren't on it for a long time uh and that you got off it pretty quickly what was the experience like after you got off methadone so the methadone helped me from like feeling the heroin withdrawal but the the methadone withdrawal was I had never felt anxiety. I hadn't felt anxiety maybe in my whole life and certainly not um, like eight years worth of it. Like I couldn't, I, 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 and I also didn't know. So, so I didn't know anything about methadone, what it did, that people stayed on it for years. I didn't know anything like that. I, something was happening to me and I, I felt like, do I have to go to Bellevue? Do I have to go to the hospital? I could I was taking off all my clothes in my apartment. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk to anybody. I I can't even tell you how horrific that was. I think I went on Paxil, some antidepressant. And then I, I lied and I kept going to meetings, but I was also drinking and then like ultimately started using again. But I... I didn't do heroin, I think, for like... I definitely didn't do it for 90 and 90. I think coming off of methadone is so horrific because you don't have any of your other sort of normal crutches and all of a sudden you're on this crutch and then you have to mm-hmm. get off of it and it's like, oh, Not to mention supposedly the molecule bonds differently to you, but... I never, I mean, like, I was on methadone off and on forever. I all people would say the horror stories about methadone, and I had to kick methadone a million times. Um, but I always thought it was just as bad as kicking dope. I, I, I think there was some probably an emotional component to it for you at that for point. For sure. Yeah. I just, I didn't have any idea. I really didn't. And so, like, maybe I was on it for, for like, a month. And then was like tapering off. And I just, I was like, what, something's happening to me. Like I can feel my skin and it hurts. Like I just, 
And my mom, you know, my parents just had no idea either. So I would like call my mom and she'd be like, just, you know, maybe go to a meeting and like, so upsetting thinking about that now. Cause I was all, I was so young and I was doing like these crazy, like grown up things. And I was just such a child still. But you were living that fantasy also. You were working at the magazine you wanted to work at. You were experiencing the kind of New York subculture that you were looking to experience, right? And Right, and that, that's for children. Right. Or, it's but, always been for children. Right, but it's a dream. It's like a dream, right? And it's like, right. and it's the dream had come true, but it had subverted itself. And it, it's right. like, and it was hell, you know? So then all of a sudden the dream is gone the the high is gone, the comfort is gone, and you're left like, what the fuck did I do? Right. I actually, like, yeah, it was, like, so in those early days of New York what, before I was sober and, like, being so cool in New York and, like, doing all the drugs and selling all the drugs and hanging out with all the people. It was fun, but I only got really cool after I got sober in New York. I have to tell you, when you talk about this stuff, when you talk about getting out and getting off of methadone, I feel those weird phantom withdrawal feelings. And it's like, I hear it in your voice. It's fucked up. I mean, and it's like, obviously, your life opened up and you got to be cool the way you wanted to be cool and you got to have freedom and joy. Mm -hmm. But like at that moment, you were doing exactly what you wanted. You know what I mean? And it was like those early dreams were coming true and it right. turned out they weren't they weren't the right dreams kind of thing. You know what I mean? Right. And I wasn't I, I wasn't I wanted I wanted I always like wanted more. Like I want I mean, not to say that I didn't once I got sober, but I was like I just wanted so desperately to be cool and like so desperately to fit in. And like part of why I sold drugs too is so that people would want to be friends with me and people would like me because I didn't, I had something to offer them. I could, because I wasn't enough, but if I have drugs, they'll all want to hang out with me. Right. I'm like, that's so, I mean, it breaks my heart thinking of that person, but I also just had no idea. Like I was, that's also like a, a side effect of doing downers for a long time it's like you start hating yourself they're depressants like and it only grew and it only got worse it was like I don't I'm awful I want to stop I can't but then the, the time I really really stopped I was just like back in the same place that I had been in like before I went to South Oaks and I was like by myself, I shot up by myself. It was like really nice and sunny out and I had nothing, I had no job, I had nothing to do. And I'm like, what? I knew I wanted things for my life. I knew I wanted a career. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids. And I was like, but I'm sitting on my couch alone doing heroin and it's sunny outside. And like, I cannot think of anything else that I have to do. And I, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I was high. I was like, I can't stop doing this. And I don't know how to stop doing it. That, that's, what I, that's what I thought. I was like, I, th- all the things that I want, this is not the way. I know, I mean, at a certain point, I also made myself believe that, like, 
some people are just meant to do heroin forever and I'll do it forever and then I'll get married when I'm 29 and then I'll get pregnant and when I'm pregnant for nine months I'll stop and then I'll start doing it again and like this is how like lots of people live that way as if (laughs) as if I'd ever be able to stop for nine months as if I was ever getting married at 29 (laughs) well how many people really get to live that way though I have no idea. This is that's the fantasy. That's the the junkie fantasy yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, that was the junkie fantasy. So then I just was like, at a certain point, I was like, I can't stop doing this. I don't want to do it, and I cannot stop. And I was like, using all the time with like, and like crying at the same time because I really didn't want to be doing it anymore, and I couldn't not. And so I called my mom again, and she wasn't. She kind of, she wasn't as mad at me this time. She said she kind of had a feeling. She kind of knew. I was like, I relapsed. I can't, you know, I was like, I went to Betty Ford when I got there. I mean, I was high. She was like, I can't, I'm not going to send you back to South Oaks. She had a friend who had had some success at Betty Ford. So she was like, I'm going to send you to Betty Ford. I was psyched. It sounded so cool. It was in California. What? It was very glamorous. Betty Ford. Betty Ford, like L.A., like 1982. Like, no, 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 no. I went there so high, so high. Got in a cab. The cab driver, I flew into LAX. Cab driver drove me to Betty Ford, got me in and out on the way because I had never had it before. Nice. I'm like doing heroin in the backseat. I get there, and like, you know, it's in the afternoon. By the time I'm ready to go to bed, they, you know, I have a physical, and I'm like, so I guess like I get methadone, and I'll take that. When are you going to give that to me? And they were like, oh, we don't give you that here. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you give? They were like, we give nothing. I lost it. I, this, there's been a mistake. Called my mom crying. I have to come home now. I have to come home now. This place, it's like, I don't fit in here. It's weird. I'm homesick. I miss you. I miss you. I, can you, can I just go to like a place on the East coast that's close to you? I just need a place that gives me Valium and methadone, please. They give you nothing. They didn't give you nothing. Nothing. They gave me, no, they gave me, um, a phenobarbital patch. Yes. And then we would rub them and put a blow dryer on them. To get the most of your phenobarbital experience. Yes. Yeah. I don't remember it having, it helping at all. Although they, they were like, it does help. It does, it is helping you. And I was like, but this fucking sucks. You know, it was like puking and writhing and shitting and crawling out of my skin and, oh, I hated it. Sweating, sweating, so much sweating. And I'm like, I need more of these patches. And they were like, it's actually helping you. <laughs> like, that's the sad thing. And I, I, you know, my mom was like, you, you're not leaving. Like, you can't come home. And I was like, fine. Then I'm, I'm leaving on my own. I'm running away. Like, I'm, I'm walking out. And she was like, okay, like, what are you going to, you're in the middle of the desert. Like, what are you going to do? I was like, I'm going to call a cab. She was like, with what money? And I'm like, with my credit card. She's like, you mean my credit card? Well, it's canceled. And I was like, whatever, I'll hitchhike. And she's like, okay, Leslie, like, Good luck. Then, right. Good luck. You go into 
Palm Desert and hitchhike. And I was like, fucking bitch. Like, you know, I'm not going to do that. I wasn't going to do that. I also like, because I did want to get sober and I was too scared. Like, I'm like a privileged, like white girl from Long Island. Like, I don't know the ways of the streets. It's not like, I have no idea. And you were 23 years old, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge piece right there. Like, I think that's another piece of your story that I think is like very relevant that you were young, you were miserable and you wanted to get out of it. And and that was a great, you know, advantage you had. You know what I'm saying? Like, I always resented people who got uh, clean early because like it it took me forever. I didn't get clean until I was 41. You know what I mean? So I had had a lifetime of like learning to navigate places that I, you know what I mean? Like just fucked up places. But also 23, you had enough fear in you and you had enough like desire in you to have a different kind of life. Right. I mean, you had taken that as far as you wanted to take it. So you stuck it out. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't. I hate like I like I said, I'd wanted to stop and I couldn't like the people who I was with and hanging out with and doing drugs with like they weren't my friends like I wasn't it was just like cold and dark and lonely and like I didn't like it who I was anymore getting high wasn't fun anymore it was like making sure that I didn't get sick it just sucked yeah I was super young was that the end of it though Betty Ford was that the end of it yeah but like it was tough you know I was there I kicked and they didn't give me like I said only the phenobarbital I went through hell it sucked and then once I was out of the physical pain I was like well I'm not gonna do anything and I'm not gonna talk to anybody and it, it was really really boring they were like okay you don't have to talk to anybody you don't have to do anything I smoked cigarettes and I talked to nobody you know everybody was blonde and everybody was normal and I'm like you know dyed black hair and everyone's an alcoholic or like a pill head and I'm like the only heroin addict and I just felt like it was like soccer moms and like me and I felt so out of place and I hated everybody and it was really really boring and then I was like well maybe the time will go by faster if I like do stuff usually does so I started going to meetings and going to group therapy and talking to people. I mean, I certainly wasn't the only person who smoked cigarettes. Like everyone smokes cigarettes and everybody was also scared. Like that was the other thing. Like I thought I was like the only one. And it's like, no, these women weren't all in a sorority. Like they all were, and they weren't all soccer moms. They were like from all walks of life and all different. And it wasn't only white people either. And it was like, but all I saw when I first got there was like white blondes. And that you were but, one of a kind and you were alone, you know, and that you right. had nobody, which is like what we all right. feel like when we first get clean. It's like that right. terrible feeling like, um, what is it? Uh, terminally unique is the feeling, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I started going to meetings and I started doing the work and I started talking to people and not, wouldn't you know, like I started making friends and like I started liking those people friends and I started laughing with those friends and I started identifying with strangers at AA meetings and I heard Betty Ford speak at an AA meeting and it was so cool and um I started eating and I hadn't had food in so long and 
I ate a lot and I gained a lot of weight and I didn't feel bad about myself either. Like I, it was great. It was great. And I really, I started reading the big book and I started doing some step work and I had a counselor and, you know, it was hard, but it was good hard. And I really, I wanted to stay sober. And I, I did, they said, you know, if you know somebody in New York who can be your sponsor, like, let's call them now. So I had, I had the number of my friend, Cindy, who wasn't my friend then. It was just, she was somebody who gave me her number and I called her from Betty Ford and I was like, when I get out, will you be my sponsor? And she was like, absolutely. Right on. So what happened? uh, What was your life like when you got back to New York then? Started going back to meetings and because I had gone to meetings before in New York, I did know some people from meetings and some cool people, people who I thought were cool. And I had this sponsor who I thought was cool. I mean, what was scarier for me was like taking care of myself. And that like, that was something I learned at Betty Ford. Like I learned how to like, like I had, we would all get different jobs and like, I would like clean toilets there and like, wake up at like five in the morning to wake everybody else up or like six in the morning to wake everybody else up, like waking up early, doing stuff like that, that I hadn't ever had to do or would bail on in the past. Like that was harder, but it wasn't, it was just something that was new for me. But like, I was like, it made me also feel better about myself. Totally. So I was like very open at that point to like, I'll just like do whatever, I'll take any suggestions. Cause I was like, really, really didn't want to start. I really didn't want to do it again. I really didn't want to get fucked up again. Like genuinely did not like just thinking about it, like made me feel gross. And it still does like the nasal drip. Like I just didn't want, I just I didn't want to get fucked up anymore. And I was so glad. Also like the kicking part was, had a huge impact on me. Like it really, really sucked. And I remember my counselor came in and was like, I know that this is awful right now. And I just want you to know that you never have to do it again if you don't want to. And I was like, I mean, it's kind of like childbirth. Like when I was giving birth, they were like, you don't wait till your second one. I was like, there is, there will be no second one. But I was like, I really, really, I'm never, I I don't ever want to feel this again. I also was like very excited to not have a ball and chain. Like it didn't matter. Like when, when you're a drug addict, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You always have to take care of getting the thing first. Like, no matter where I was going, what I was doing, if I got something good, if something bad happened, if something good happened, if it was Thanksgiving, I had to first go and cop. Yes. And, like, I was so glad that I didn't have to do that anymore. And I didn't have to wait. Like, remember, like, waiting? Yes, of course. Like, and I was so excited that, because I hadn't, it had been, like, a lot of years. And I was, like, constantly, like, waiting and waiting and, like, had this ball and chain and I just, I didn't have that. I also was like, if this means that I'm going to be a total loser now and I'm not going to be cool in New York, like fine. Right. I was like at that point of humility where I was like, I don't care. Like maybe I'll just, maybe I'm just not meant to, 
be as cool as I like, I want to be. And like, maybe I won't ever like have my picture in paper magazine or whatever. And I, I was like, I just don't want to, you know, I did like, it was very NA when I first got sober, a lot of slogans, just one day at a time, keep coming back. Like very programmed, like very, if you're feel like you're being brainwashed, it's because your brain needs a washing, which was like good for me at that time. You know, it does, that stuff didn't keep me sober and like, doesn't keep me sober. But for being that young, right out of rehab, living in New York city, I needed to like really be in the middle of that, of the program. I did do AA, but it was mostly NA. You seem like such an unlikely person to have the slogans work. You know what I mean? Like, you seem like such the classic, like, this is bullshit. I don't want to hear about it. Like, think, 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 or whatever the... I mean, I think that now. But when I was, like, you know, then it was like, I would hear people say, like, play the tape out. And it's like, because I also think that I was very, very living, like, a day at a time. And it was like, I did it perfectly today. Didn't pick up. Like, maybe tomorrow I will, but today I didn't. It's like... Well, that's not enough for me anymore. Like, I'm not interested in doing the program perfectly anymore. Perfection has never been the end goal for me. It's progress. And so just not picking up a drink, just not picking up a drug, while that may be perfect, it has nothing to do with progression. You know what I mean? Like, there's no progress in just not picking up. No, no. You need to get better. You need to grow in some kind of way. You need to find who you are. You need to be as free as I can possibly be, have a working relationship with God in order to be of service to other people. Literally, I have been, I was dry for 10 fucking years. Did not do anything. And I didn't drink. I did not work a program. Maybe I went to meetings occasionally and looked at my phone the whole time and came late, left early just enough to say I'm in the program. I didn't do shit and I was fucking miserable. Right. And like, and anytime I would get a job, thank you so much, God, talk to you later. And anytime something great happened in my career, boom, thanks. See you later. And then I lost that thing. You know, like I created my own TV show with my husband and I got fired from it. I want to know why. Because I was a, pain in the ass I mean look it's there's there's it takes two to tango and you know what starts to happen when we stop going when when we stop practicing the step working the steps what starts happening when we stop working with others what stops happening when we stop being in a fellowship with our peoples I feel insecure I'm 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 so bad at this I don't know what I'm doing but if only everybody would listen to me and do what I said then everything would be great Nobody else knows as much as I do. Why won't they listen to me? I'm a fraud. Everyone will find out. I mean, this is an insane person, right? It, then I'm, I become, oh, well, Paul's acting like my mom. Judd's acting like my dad, and they're being mean to me, and it's not fair. And they, I mean, I, you become an alcoholic. Like, you're back in your family unit. Yes. Feeling like you the day before you want I ever drank the day before I ever did ecstasy for the first time whatever it was the day before I 
what led me to doing it in the first place. And that's not the only job I've been fired from either, you know? And like, I tried everything. I went to work listening to self-help podcasts, not white on the steering wheel. Like, God, God's in the room. You're here, you're here. Therapy, psychiatrist, God, God, God. It's like, I can't just like demand it like that. Like it, and like maybe God was with me at that time, but I was like, I need this to work. So like, you got to work with me, God. Like, I need this to work. Like if I fuck this up, I am going to be the ultimate failure. And like, I will never work again and everybody will hate me. And like, you can't do this to me. You can't give me this gift and then take it away. Like grasping, like you got to work, you got to meet me halfway, God. Like I've I've been doing a good job. Yes. Bargaining. And like, look, I've been sober for 10 years. I've been sober long enough to know what, how to do life. So it, it can't be me that's in the wrong can't possibly be me because I'm sober and nobody else is. You guys don't understand. You guys don't understand. This is what's right. What you're doing is wrong and you're all deluded. And I'm the one that's really living the right life. I was so dry. That's like, I mean, your honesty, like I I cannot, you know, listen, I've kept you on this thing for a long time, (laughs) but the stuff that you're saying is like, so hardcore and so real and like you're talking about 10 years dreams coming true like things that everybody would look up to you and you bottomed out without using yeah and and just i mean like first of all thank you for being so honest like it's fucking it's gonna help somebody and it's amazing that you're willing to do it you know what i mean like because you know what though like because I don't feel ashamed about that anymore. And I don't feel embarrassed. And did I never not work in this town again? No. But did I feel like I wouldn't? Did I feel like I wanted to die? Absolutely. I was so afraid. I was so afraid what people thought of me, my friends, my husband. How can you still want to, how can you still be in love with me? As if, as if, like, I'm not my job. And like, I remember I said to my friend Bruce and I'm telling him all this through tears and he's like it's just a job he's like who fucking it's a tv show like you'll have another one like what do you mean your career is ruined as if there's as if any human person can do that to me either you know like i could do it to myself other than that like no one is out there's no like villain of the story like i was so upset for so long like i have no like I don't hate Judd at all. And I, I feel bad even like bringing his name into this because like, I think he really also tried his best. And I think both of us are very similar in a lot of ways. We're like, we were both missing a piece that like we needed. Cause like, I did feel like I connected with him a lot and still do like Judd is a great communicator and like a great person to talk to but like I'm also like a scary girl (laughs) that like yells a lot when I'm when I'm not getting my way and like I would fire me too and that wasn't I got fired from Brooklyn Nine-Nine too like that's like a whole different story and like before me too and all that but like needless to say it's kind of funny to me now it's like oh you think this shit can't happen in sobriety wait for it 
Right. You know? But that's also like when they say you only have today and how good is your today? You know what I mean? It's not how much time you have. It's how good your today is. Like what do you do today to keep that stuff from keeping you down? You know what I mean? Like I I, I got five years in August and that was the most time I ever had in my life. And I was not doing well. You know what I mean? Because I was going to a meeting once every couple of weeks. I wasn't praying. I wasn't doing step work. I was barely talking to my sponsor. I had no sponsees, nothing. And I came up on five years and I was like getting into fights every day with everybody. You know, like, mm-hmm. and, and I had to double down on, on spirituality and on program and all that stuff. So I understand what you're saying. And I think you being Leslie Orphan, you know, prolific writer, you know, accomplished person coming on my stupid podcast and saying that is very meaningful to me. So I really appreciate that. Dude, straight up, like being dry and then like getting good things and like doing the bare minimum, doing enough to like get me a little bit back into sobriety. So I'd get the next thing and then be like, peace God. And then what changed for me this time is that I started doing the big book hardcore like, call me a book thumper. I've been called a lot worse. I have five sponsees now. And this isn't even a brag. Like, I don't want five sponsees. I I love them. But, like, my sponsor, like, I started going to this big book study. And it is, it's like, you know, we talk about that. My podcast was called, called Filling the Void. And it, we always talk about, you know, that God-sized hole mm-hmm. that we're trying to fill it in us. And like that, it's not, it's not a void. It's not, it's not a hole that's filled with nothing. It's a hole that is filled with self and ego and God is underneath it. And so it's like we chip away. And the whole process of the steps is unblocking, unblocking, so we have access to our higher power that's already there. Like, it's so I have so much self, so much self, and I'm like doing this work because I want access. I'm like, I'm done because not not drinking and doing drugs and not doing program is bullshit. Sucks. Yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> sucks. Like, I don't even know where to get heroin in LA. I do. You just go downtown, Sixth and Spring. Ask for Flacco. Um, <laughs> like, I'm not getting tar. I'm not going doctor shopping. Like, that's a lot of work. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, but I'm going to, I'll probably drink. No. Right? So I can't. Like, there's no way. Somebody once said at a meeting, if you if you if you have a problem and you drink over it, then you have a minimum of two problems. Right, right. But not to <laughs> there's mention, no world where I think I can drink safely. Like I don't even want to drink safely. I don't know what that. I don't know. I don't understand that. Who drinks to just have a have a drink? Like there's no. You drink to get drunk. Like what other kind of drinking is there? Not to mention you did drugs to get out of your head to get as far gone as you could get. Um, and basically like if you do program, you don't know how, how far you can go with it. Like the, the levels that you can get to are like, they're big, cool levels of like growth. You know what I'm saying? Are you with me? I'm a hundred percent with you. I had no idea. So like I was saying, you know, when I hit this bottom in recovery and all the things that I was afraid of, and it's like, then you start, start like, you know, reading the big book, working with your sponsor, doing, listening to other people at meetings, thinking about like, it's also time. Like 
like a lot of time passed and I was really sad about it for a really long time with the love thing and really embarrassed. And like, then you just start telling the truth little by little, you know, like maybe if not to my friends, maybe if not to my family, then like at a meeting where nobody knows me. And then that little bit of truth, you know, goes into a conversation with somebody that's like, well, I was on a TV show. I created my own TV show that I got fired from. Like, and then they laugh. And then when they laugh, you're like, that's a great drunk story. You know, like it is, it's like one of those things that it's like, it is, it is kind of funny. Do I have a bad reputation based on it? Maybe. Maybe. But fuck it. Probably. I mean, what am I going to do? You're going to do your, you're going to do your next thing because that's what you do. And like, it is funny. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast. Right. The whole point of this podcast is to say, I made a TV show uh, and it was all mine and I got fired because I was dry. It's like, we did, we did a podcast about the worst things we did on drugs to laugh about them. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's the same thing, you know? So I, I, I totally understand it. And, um, I love that you came on and you told your story and and you got down with it. And it's like, it's a big deal because you being so honest is the whole point of this thing. The whole point of this thing is to find a way to acknowledge the things we do. Anyway, thank you, Leslie, for coming on. You were awesome. We really let it Thank you. You've done so much in five years. Like you're, I can't believe that you only have five years. It's like nothing. And it's like an eternity. It is fucking ridiculous. Anyway, Leslie, it's been a thrill and a pleasure, and thank you. Bye. Take care. So I thought that was awesome that Leslie Arfin decided to come on the show. And if you didn't know, when she's talking about Paul and Judd at the end, when she's talking about her own show uh, based on her own life that she got fired from, she's talking about her husband, the movie star Paul Rust, and again, the producer, Judd Apatow, who passed on the Dopey Project. Their show was called Love. And I actually really enjoyed Love. It's on Netflix still if you want to see it. And um, I thought it was really bold of Leslie to explain that you can be sober but dry. Or you can be abstinent and yet not sober. And your life isn't great. Um, Which happens. You can get time and your shit doesn't get put back together because you're lacking a program or some sort of spiritual path, you know? Being dry is almost worse than using because you don't even get to get high. You're just in misery with yourself. But before we go, I want to read a dopey email. I love dopey emails. Send in a dopey email. Send in a dopey voicemail. Keep it around five minutes. Make it funny. Make it dopey. Send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the show. Leave a five-star review. Make some dopey art. You know what I really need is a dopey song. Send in a dopey song. Anyway, this is from Double O Dave. And he writes, Dear Dave, or Hey Dave, this is one of my few attempts emailing you a dopey story over the years and thought I'd try again. I'm a longtime listener and started listening around episode 70. And I just wanted to say that dopey has been a huge part of my recovery over the last few years. I don't really have people in my life these days that truly get where I come from or that can even relate. Thanks for being real, open, and honest on your show and giving so many of us a place where we don't feel so alone. Anyways, 
Here's one of my most ridiculous and dumbest stories that I wanted to send you a long time ago after an episode where you and Chris talked about how far you'd go to get high. I was in my late 20s and pretty strung out on oxys, meth, benzos, Adderalls, and dope when I could actually get dope in Salina, Kansas, where I lived until I was 30. You had to make extra special efforts and drive long distances to get heroin, when most of the time it just wasn't worth it, so oxys, which would break down in a spoon, would have to do. But then Dilaudid started showing up everywhere, and if you've ever shot Dilaudid before, you'd know what I mean by the fact that I didn't feel envious of heroin addicts anymore, because I found a better, cleaner, quicker alternative. Although after a while without a prescription, which I couldn't get anymore and no friends close by to hook me up, I had to start making extra special efforts to get Dilaudid now too, and I was fucking hooked. At the time, I was on probation and thought I was going to lose my driver's license. I had a friend that lived way out in the boonies outside of Dodge City, Kansas, which is about a three-hour car ride from where I lived, and he had a handful of 10-milligram Dilaudids to share. It's a good friend. I had a little bit of dough from a disability settlement, and I had a way to get out there. Most people I knew were just tweakers and couldn't give a rat's ass about opiates. In fact, they looked at me like I was the junkie for using dope and pills. So because I was about to lose my license and you could still legally ride a scooter without one, I went out and bought a new 49cc scooter that didn't go over 30 miles an hour for one payment of a 1000 bucks. I decked it out with Harley-Davidson stickers and flames, made it road-ready with a rack to hold extra gas cans and homemade saddlebags. I've probably been up for a few days, twacked out on speed and benzos, but I was really hurting for a fix, and I found a temporary solution to get by in hard times, which was canned air duster. So late at night, I planned my route to Dodge City, Riding on the shoulder of the highway at 30 miles an hour. I had my helmet in case it rained, but it also fit nicely between the seat and the handlebars, which was the perfect place to hold my air duster and take hits as I rode, blacking out almost every time I took a hit. Not sure how that didn't kill me. I came to a town called Lyon, Kansas, which is known for being a rough redneck biker town. And sure enough... There was about 20 bikers there hanging out at the gas station. I pulled up on my decked-out scooter, also wearing my Harley leather jacket, because I actually used to ride a real bike, but it was stolen by tweakers. A whole other story. Anyways, I BSed with a few of them, and I think they were a little weirded out by me to say the least. Ha ha ha. I went on my way and finally arrived at my friend's house the next day. Now, by the time I got there, him and his girlfriend have already used up most of the Dilaudids. Now, if I ended up fi- now, if I wasn't dope sick and mentally retarded from the air duster, I probably would have killed them. Obviously, we ended up finding more. Now, the craziest part of this story is that my friend's girlfriend was a licensed drug counselor, and I was facing prison time for a dirty UA, which was a probation violation. This meant I had to be screened by a licensed drug counselor, and the counselor would also have to testify in court for me. Well, here was my golden ticket. Neither her or my best friend could hit their veins worth of shit, but I was a fucking pro with needles. So I made a friendly deal with them that they didn't have that even if they didn't have drugs to share with me, I'd find a way to get 
to them anytime when they needed someone to shoot them up. And in return, she would give me the court-ordered drug screening and take the stand for me. Believe it or not, the plan actually worked, and I didn't have to go to prison. The lifestyle, too many overdoses, deaths, and long stints in jail finally caught up with me. I eventually found my way into recovery by the grace of God, and now 10 years later, with nine years clean, I'm living in Austin, Texas with a beautiful family. I have a good relationship with my older son that's now killing it in college. Life's not too bad these days. I'm just one of the lucky ones that made it out. Anyway, hope you enjoyed this story as much as I enjoyed writing it. Thanks for everything you do, Dave. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And that is from Double O Dave. And yes, Double O Dave, I love this email. Dopey Nation, pay attention. This is the way you write a fucking dopey email. I love it. If anybody else has any twacked out tales, please send them to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody for everything they do for the show. Musicians, send in some fucking music. Artists, please make some art. Everybody, give nice reviews. Thank you to all the Facebook administrators. Thank you to the great Carnif. Thank you to the great Cormac for running Reddit. Fucking Misty for pumping out the jams. Matt for sending decals. Sam for putting up with me. Linda for putting up with me way more. The great Ray Brown eating pubes, celebrating his birthday. And everyone else in Dopeyland. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And thank you also to uh, Leslie Orphan and the great Judd Apatow. One more time. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune. Show. Home friends I had her on the 
this little radio I keep checking on my pulse Because it feels like I might die But the thought straightening up Sounds so much better when you're high And I wanna be good so bad y'all hear this makes it through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want if not I know it kind of sucks alright I really appreciate it thanks y'all